that's what pro sports teams do. They actually can see that player in real time as opposed to just a simulation. And sales leaders don't get that piece, right? There's this whole, inside of pro sports, there's this whole thing going on and I'm hell bent on breaking it. I had a one-on-one. I was on a guy with today with an NFL executive on the partnership about two hours before this call. And I go, where are you spending all your time? Because well, Lance, I got a, I'm doing a one-on-one with my salespeople every week. I said, so you have seven people on your team. That's seven times 4.3. You're spending over a week a month just in one-on-ones. Why? What are you accomplishing there? Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. That was Lance Tyson. Lance is president and CEO of the Tyson Group, a sales consulting and training firm. He's also the author of a new book titled Igniting Sales IQ, Driving Sales Confidence During Uncertainty. And in our conversation today, we dig into how to effectively sell during times of uncertainty like we're experiencing now. We start by digging into the fact about selling that a lot of salespeople don't recognize, which is that selling takes place in the buyer's mind. We get into why, with the use of technology, whether it be the internet, email, marketing, automation, sales tech, whatever, that there are more salespeople now than there's ever been. As Lance points out, what that means is that certain sales are complex enough that buyers need to have a human involved to help them make a decision, to help them through their buying process. And we dive into why salespeople need to keep it simple and learn the process of leveraging their EQ, their emotional intelligence, so they can start to tip the scales in their favor. Because let's face it, just like a casino, the sales odds are stacked in the buyer's favor. It's a fascinating discussion, and we get to all this and much, much more. But before we get to Lance, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could leave us a review, give us your feedback about how we're doing. So thank you. All right, let's jump into it. Lance, welcome back to the show. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Andy. Glad to be back. That's a pleasure. Um, so remind people what you do, because you have one of the more interesting, I think, one of the more interesting sales training businesses uh, out there. Yeah, I, I appreciate you asking. Um, Ty- Tyson Group is a... Um, is an old, we believe sales is an ultimate team sport. So we mm-hmm. were we compete against some of the bigger training companies. We've been recognized by selling power and training industry and and things like that. Our our niche or niche is is we do a lot in sports sports and entertainment. So we you think of the you think of the brand, you think of the team that you like. Um, that's us. I was a couple of weeks ago. I was in Seattle with the Mariners and. Mm-hmm. I was at the bar with the or having a couple of drinks with their sales executive team, and they're a customer. And then the bar was cheering for a new team in Seattle called the, the Kraken, Kraken, who's also a customer of ours. Right. So it was kind of interesting to see customers cheering for each other. But um, we, but much like any other business, sports and entertainment um, depends what you sell in sports can be semi complex to com- a complex sale. The complex sales are the big uh, partnership deals they do um, all the way to the semi-complex, maybe, you know, selling high-end hospitality, which is mm-hmm. all B2B selling. And that's about 60% of our business. So it kind of attracts talent to our business. And uh, I, I'm told by my people, it's sexy. 
So, <laughs> so I guess if that's if that's the word. So, well, the interesting part of our business is we we're pretty boutiquey. So everything we do is tailored. So we right. come in with a frame, and we really tailor everything we do to specific with the. We believe our customers suffer from the disease of uniqueness. That's what yeah. we believe. Well, they all do. Yeah, yeah, they so do. That's, they yeah do. that's the problem with one of the mindsets we have in sales in general is that. Everybody wants to make it a cookie cutter, right. and all the customers are unique. They really are. They really from and you know when we when we go into we we've, this year we've turned our business a little bit. We do a ton of consulting now. It's probably thirty percent of our mix, and our we we have this uh, IP we call Sales Team Six, and it's sales leadership, sales management, which we distinctly believe are two things: sales process methodology. Yes. Enablement, which you and I were talking about before, technology, and then talent. And inside that sales process and methodology, people are just all over the place with what they think their methodology is as opposed mm-hmm. to what it should be. And it, it is unique, and, and it's hard to really help them see there are some things that are the same, though, too. Yeah, but I think that in general in sales, people try to say that, well, you know, the acumen – Part of selling is in recognizing how one opportunity is like another. And I think it's really the inverse. I think it's recognizing how one opportunity is different from others. I agree. And and I think those, I think you can scale a little bit when you look for things that are the same, but then you're going to have to go in there and a lot, especially a complex or semi-complex sale. You're going to also have to understand, like you said, the uniqueness or what's different, right? And And because people you sell to want to feel that, you've really taken into consideration their issue, their situation. Well, that you really understand what makes yes. them unique. Very <laughs> right? much, very yeah. much so. I was just having a conversation with somebody. Asked, yeah, he was talking about, you know, how do you, how do you differentiate? And in my mind, it starts with understanding. You know, it the does. degree that you, you have an understanding of the buyer and things that are most important to them is then you have the ability to, understand the uniqueness and differentiate accordingly. I, I agree. It's so interesting you say that because um, so many salespeople we deal with and sales leaders, they really feel it necessary. They really want to understand a, a, a vertical or really understand. I was on with a younger salesperson with the Cowboys recently, and she goes, I need to really understand these verticals. I go, you do, but at the same time, when you get in face-to-face with somebody or, or – um, Zoom to Zoom with somebody. I think you got to understand their world, and that's different than understanding an industry, right? Because every single business has its own acumen and the own way to look at things, and that heightened listening and understanding, listening to understand versus listen to respond, is critical. I think you're absolutely right. right. Yeah, yeah. Well, so you'd mentioned um, the second ago about the, <laughs> this is a topic I love talking about is the difference between leadership and management. Yeah. So tell us about that. So, so I think when you when we pull or go in and, and work with an organization, I'll ask a question like, um, "Do you see yourself more as a leader or manager?" And and most people would would say, "Well, more a leader." And I go, well, "What's really the difference?" And then I'll have the group, you know, give a definition. And and what dawned on me over the years is most people think they're just. There's similar things. There's similarities mm-hmm. to it, or it's just the word you choose, but everybody gravitates the word leadership. 
And the way we break it down is if you kind of th- th- this will take a, a minute, but it, but if you sure. follow my train of thought, you know, we ask the question, what's the difference between art and science? Right. And people will say art is subjective. You know, people say science can be proven. OK, unless you're in COVID. Right. I mean, I guess there's a lot right. of arguments. Before that, we thought that. But yeah. Before COVID, that's kind of what we thought. And then I'll, I'll say, OK, if you put them each in a column, then take the next word, take music and lyrics. Where does music go? Where do lyrics go? That usually causes a tremendous debate, especially if somebody was ever a musician. But at the end of the day, I. If, if you, um, I don't, I don't know about you, but for years I've listened to Howard Stern. He's really tamed down. One of the questions he always asks as a musician is, "Can you read sheet music?" And I always found that an interesting question. Right. And a half of them can't. Right. But music is a science. There's eight notes to it. Can you read sheet music or not? So, so music really goes in this argument goes to the science side, and lyrics. If you ever listen to a Bob Dylan song or like a a rap song, sure. Right. Like. How I mean, that's open to interpretation what that means. So those two end up lining up. And then you'll ask, then I ask the question, what's the difference between efficiency and effectiveness? Can you be efficient, not effective? And can you be effective and not efficient? Right. And then people will go, well, that's kind of, I said in a performance review, would you want to be efficient or effective? Most people say effective. Okay. So effect being effective is, is in turn open to, open to interpretation. So we'd stick that under art. Efficiency is kind of more. I can yeah, make a thousand phone calls, right? It doesn't mean yeah. I can sell anything. Right. Okay, the last two concepts, real simple, right? Do it right or do the right thing. What's do it right mean? What's do the right thing mean? Somebody says, well, do the right thing is it's kind of open to interpretation. I go, yeah, you might you might lose a popularity contest by doing the right thing. I mean, it's mm-hmm. value driven and things like that. Do it right usually infers you're following a process. Okay. Right. Then when you start landing that after we do that exercise, they go, where does leadership go? Where's management go? And people go, oh, leadership kind of goes under the art. Yes. And then management goes into the process. So then the argument becomes, how can you say your job is only the art side? The art happens to be the people side. The mm-hmm. art, so that would be vision and people skills and, and understanding motivation, right? Um, management would be things like plan, organize, direct coordinate control probably in that order too right so they're the pro- that's the process of management and then you have functions of leadership and you're probably going to be good at both in most of your jobs and then so the question is the next question we always ask is do you lean more to the leadership side or more the management side and then that's when you start getting the split in the room right, right. because the split in the room then becomes some people go yeah even though i like the word leadership i'm actually more management oriented. So our goal always, and the way we look at sales management and sales leadership are two different things. Sales management is your KPIs, the predictable process. Mm -hmm. Sales leadership is culture and understanding motivation. So we split them that way. We really split the ad in there because we think they're just two different things. Yeah. Well, I think the question becomes is, and you touched on it earlier, is ideally someone in a leadership role combines both, but yeah, I find too often the case is, is that's not that's not the case, right? right. Is that is that people are either have the the art down and sort of follow that, or yeah, I, I sort of stop calling it managers. I just call them they're just bosses. Right. Right. Yeah. You, know, and they, you want to be a boss or you want to be a leader? Yeah, no doubt. And but but if you when you when you do get into the management concept, right? And you really start to think about it. And you think about salespeople that get into leadership. What, what are they usually poor at? So anytime 
we do an assessment and we it's it's when we do talent assessments and we we do them to look at the dna of a team but we also we do competency-based assessments and also kind of pre-hire stuff we really demand that of our customers because there's just too much science out there not to do it. Right. And it, you're going to spend $90,000 and you're not going to spend a thousand dollars to see what you got competency wise. Right. It's silly. Well, when we look at, at, at those things and do an assessment, especially any succession planning for somebody going to move up, usually like for instance, salespeople, most salespeople are ready, fire, aim. Most salespeople are problem solvers, not problem finders. Well, when you look at the root of those things, that's really planning and critical thinking, right? Mm-hmm. So, so the management side really does be, you know, kind of grows out of being able to plan, having a predictable way to put a plan together. Then right. if you can plan, you can ultimately organize. If you can organize, right, then you can direct your resources. If you can direct your resources, then you can coordinate. The last thing you want in management and your comment to bosses, right, is control. Most most very young leaders try to control everything first. And and that's that's immaturity. You got to then get people to buy into the plan. Then you got to get people. You got to understand motivation. Mm-hmm. The other big thing is, from a leadership perspective, a lot of sales leaders think they have to be some some motivational figure <laughs> or character, and it's such a joke. I'm like, get out of that business. You, it's not well, a one size fits most. Well, so right? it it. It begets the whole argument: is motivation extrinsic or intrinsic? And and I yeah, and it and it is. I mean, by definition, in Latin, it means from within. It's not outer. Right. It's right. it's from within. You got to understand motivation. So then, when you when we start breaking that down, because our mission statement, and we we believe this firmly, and I got this. Um, we're I'm a big admirer of um, Stanley McChrystal's group, the McChrystal Group. Um, mm-hmm. They. Um, you know, he wrote the book Team of Teams, right. and one of their one of their they they believe leader. You work through leaders to get to the critical mass. So our mission statement is we work through sales leaders and their teams to compete in the complex world. That's our right. mission statement. Right. So, so like we won't even take on a project if we can't touch leadership. We just really have no interest in the project. It's a waste of time for us because Absolutely. there's too many. And like that's where we I think. Our philosophically is the difference for us as we approach business. We're a pain in the ass to work with. <laughs> At the end of the day, how do you how do you affect change if you can't deal through leadership? Uh, exactly, and how can you affect it well? Because what I what we tell a lot of leaders anytime anybody does sales training, right? I'm pretty passionate about. It. I've been in the training business my whole life. I started right. with Carnegie training years ago, and and I, I I think at the end of the day, sales leaders need to understand anytime. You bring any organization and have somebody watch a video, read a book on sales, you essentially are abdicating responsibility to somebody else because it's your KPI to train people. That is your KPI as a sales leader. Mm-hmm. And so when we go in, we're like, hey, we're an extension of your arm at the end of the day. Hmm. Yeah, it's. I mean, I... <sighs> I think we, in general, and I'm curious in your your take on this, but then we'll then we'll talk about your book. We came to yeah, talk. No, about no worries. Book. I love that. I can talk, Andy. I can talk about this concept because it's so in, it's it causes so much friction in organizations. Yeah. It really does. So, my belief is that in general, I, I again, people listen to the show, hear me say it almost every episode, is that you know people want to point the fingers at managers for being incapable of doing certain things, but we don't ever train them to do these things that we expect them to do. 
<laughs> and and so I always say like, geez, if, you know, figures are we spent $15 billion a year in sales training in the United States. Yeah, most of which is spent on training individual contributors, right? Is what if we flipped the fractions? What if we spent 90% of that 15 billion on training managers? Yep. No, is, would we have would we have the same impact, better impact? I think we'd have better impact. I agree. I agree. You'd have better impact. I mean, you, you look at any any evidence of why people leave jobs. Typically, money compensation is the third reason. Usually, number one or number two. And this is this is for twenty years. If you look at anything out of the Society for Human Resource Management, it's usually the boss is the issue. Yeah, there was just a, something came out from Gallup to the same the same effect. Gallup has always been reporting this, but there was some recent Gallup report that you know substantiated that. No, there, the, it, yeah, you are you are dead on. I th- I think for um, we we just were having a branding conversation on this yesterday with my team, and and we were talking about content for the next year, and I'm really pushing hard to get out of always posting blogs or anything just around sales effectiveness. Our messaging, our audience has to really go more toward the leader. Mm-hmm. That's actually who our buyer is. More importantly than that, though, is is to affect that change and longstanding change. I mean, you're not going to get, you know, you're not going to get what you need to if you're not doing those things. Yeah. Yeah. And I just, yeah, managers are so, so ill-equipped. And so what happens, I, I find, is that they default to the KPIs, right? Because we haven't enabled them to to understand how to work with an individual, help them improve their performance, how to you know help them do the things they need to do to get better. First of all, because the manager's own base of experience is pretty slim, uh, yep. right? Because they're newly promoted. But I find this problem goes all the way up the chain. It right? does. Is, is it I does. look at the contrast, like in professional sports, so you work with teams, I'm a huge soccer fan and look at the coaching staffs and the way they, they, they train these performance based professions for improvement is dramatically different than in sales, which is great, <laughs> which is essentially the same pursuit. Just, you know, it's not physical, it's mental. Well, we, and we talk, we actually literally, we talk about that so much. There's two concepts in sales. You spend 90% of your time on the game field, Right. Yeah. 90% of your time is, is playing the game in sales. And then when you look at coaching in pro sports, it goes practice coach, game coach, practice coach. Okay. Now, when we look at best practices with sales leaders, I look at their KPIs and I look at why their job exists. They spend very few time game coaching people. It's always after, before they lose that whole piece. And so they always ask our team questions like, okay, how do I do game coach? I go, well, you go on a joint call, for instance, you go with Andy on a joint call, you don't sell. When's the last time you just didn't sell on a call or get some kind of technology we can watch and you game coach? See, that's what that's what pro sports teams do. They actually can see that player in real time as opposed to just a simulation. And sales leaders don't get that piece, right? They spend, I don't know, there's this whole, inside of pro sports, there's this whole thing going on, and I'm, I'm hell-bent on breaking it. One-on-one. <laughs> one-on-one. I had a one-on-one. I was on a guy with, today, an NFL executive on the partnership, t- about two hours before this call. And I go, where are you spending all your time? He goes, well, Lance, I gotta, I'm, I'm doing a one-on-one with my salespeople every week. 
And so you so you have seven people on your team. That's seven times four point three. You're spending over a week a year, a week a month just in one-on-ones. Why? What are you accomplishing there? Then we start to break it down. And we're, I'm on a, we're on a retainer with this organization. Start to break it down. I go, I go, shit, like half, half the stuff you're talking about one-on-one should be handled in your sales meeting. Now tell me about the cadence of your sales meeting. Mm-hmm. What are you trying to accomplish there? And then as I as we went through and start to editorialize that there's six things in a sales meeting you shouldn't have been doing. First thing was announcements. That, that, <laughs> I was like, man, like I just but the guy's intent slack was for? right. His intent was right. It was it was right. Where spend his time is wrong because he's not observing his salespeople. He's observing metrics. He's right. observed okay. Metrics only tell so much. Well, it, so you you beg an interesting question: is what what is the purpose of a one on one, or is there still value in a one on one? Maybe not with the same frequency that he's doing it, but yeah, it's it's an interesting question. I, we're really big on, and your audience might really be challenged with I'm, what I'm about to say here. So you're going to have to really take this with a rub. Um, <laughs> we coach to be con- we coach leaders to be consistently inconsistent. Um, so, so if you're running one-on-ones for a period of time, you would, you would stop running them also, or you would do them infrequently, or you kind of plan that out. Being over predictable is not always a great thing. Mm-hmm. So I find there's, there's a, so much of a rhythm people get in and then they can't break out of the rhythm. They don't right. know why they're having the one-on-one. So you said something about frequency. I, I'm more apt to have open office hours for certain people. I got a couple of people, salespeople, my team report to my VP that don't need a one-on-one, but when they come asking for help, mm-hmm. you should, you should be ears up. So you shouldn't be overly predictable with what you do. Mm-hmm. All the time. You should think about that unpredictability a little bit. Um, we're more apt to have the seller drive the one-on-one. Yeah, there's some time you want to catch up, get to know, get to know people deeper, spend a little right. time with them as a human. Get that. Um, it, it, you shouldn't be talking about their pipeline there, other than if it's something you had to crack. That pipeline should be dealt with in a pipeline meeting, right? Right. So, so it should be planned out more that way. And I think what's happening is there's this, and I don't know where it comes from. I know where it comes from in pro sports. There's a one of the leagues that really starts promoting concepts and everybody bites on, on it for some reason. It's like the flavor of the week. So I know where that comes from, but it, it seems this concept of these overdone one-on-ones and, and I think people's intent to do the one-on-ones is, is right. I think what they're accomplishing isn't right. Mm-hmm. And I think it's gobbling monster amount of time up with folks. Do some people need personal attention? Yes. Do they need that much? I'm not sure. Yeah. No, I, I tend to agree. I mean, I think that that I wonder if if perhaps this person you're talking to, some of this came about as a result of remote work and so on, is that Yes. Yeah, you know, when you're in an office, yeah, you know, I I would always have a lot of one on ones with my team, but they would be me standing in the doorway for ten minutes. Um Informal. See, I like informal sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it it could, it could. I I would say a couple of these organizations, this was happening way before COVID. And it's, it's, I I think, I think number one, the first thing we see is what they're trying to accomplish should be accomplished with the group. There's more power in coaching the herd together. 
Mm-hmm. So they're trying, a lot of people are trying to do pipelines in these one-on-ones or trying to coach in the one-on-ones and things like that. Um, so there needs to be more structure with how they do joint calls. And then there needs to be work of what they're trying to accomplish in their sales meeting every week or biweekly sales meeting, whatever they're having, right? And then we then we break that down, we actually find out most of them are having too many meetings in one meeting anyway. Like mm-hmm. if you're gonna have a pipeline meeting, have the pipeline meeting. Don't have, you know, don't be announcing the company picnic there too, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's what Slack is for. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. We're converting over to that. I'm pretty I'm kind of excited. I have a whole project team on that. We're we're excited about going to that. Yeah. I mean, I think it's great. I mean, it's, and the messaging is, yeah, in general, I think saves so much time in terms of people being right. able to communicate. Um, and if, if you have a good culture and people use it effectively, I think it's a great, a great tool. We use it a lot. Yeah. We're going to, we're going to convert over to it. That will be a whole thing. Getting everybody to buy into it, it's going to be the big thing <laughs> as it always <laughs> is. Right. So compliance. Yeah. Well, I think, again, I think people find they see the, the utility of it, then yeah, they'll buy into it pretty quickly. So I uh, did want, while we still have some time, let's, let's talk yeah. about your, your new book. You, especially as I told you before, we start recording. It's, it starts with one of my favorite criteria is short. Um, and, but it's called igniting sales EQ, driving sales confidence during uncertainty. And so was this something you wrote specifically, you know, sort of in response to the pandemic? You know, a it, 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 couple things, yes. I mean, one was um, all the coaching we were doing was more around, um, I, I was finding sales leaders were really becoming counselors at some level, right? Mm-hmm. And um, I think that was that was definitely an issue. And two is, you know, being tone deaf or not being tone deaf or um, in the pandemic with customers and things like that, because everybody was really dealing with all kinds of things. You had the haves and have nots in COVID and you still have that at some level. So I, I decided like we were coaching so much that on that, um, I said, let me do something on EQ. And, and I'm not a, so I struggle with the concept myself because mm. I'm part of me when I'm coaching salespeople or our team is coaching salespeople, sometimes over empathizing things in sales is not a great move. No, no, it's not. No. It's not. I, I would prefer, I think Dale Carnegie said, um, sympathy is great. Be sympathetic to people's ideas and desires because they gave birth to them. So sympathy is as much of a good play as anything else. So I struggled with the concept, but as I started to do more research on it and really started digging into self, self-awareness, mm-hmm. having that radar, I, I really start to re- respect it more and understand it more than I ever had. So, yeah, I did write it for the pandemic, but I re- wrote it really more for leaders. And then I interviewed um, a, a gentleman who's currently the president of Global Sales for Legends. And Legends is owned by Cowboys and Yankees, an investment firm. Right. And um, he talked about what happened in, in way back in um, 07, 08 during the meltdown when he was at Madison Square Garden selling a lot to really big Wall Street firm. So it, it really kind of helped the book take off. His name is Mike Andreco and and it was great. Yeah, so. you you quote him throughout. I mean, I think he had, you know, it's a great quote, which sort of speaks this idea. Because I think that, that um, I think we're always in a time of uncertainty. <laughs> is, 
yeah, at least I look over the, the arc of my career and the decades of my career is there's rarely been a time, whether because of financial market disruptions, massive inflation, uh, foreign wars, you know, whatever, that there's always this element of uncertainty. I, yeah, I agree. You, you're, you're so right. And it really depends what industry you're in, too, right? So you've sure. got to be ready for that uncertainty. And I don't think the e, I don't think that EQ is I think it's taught. I don't think it's recognized. I mean, it comes out with things like part of me says, you know, having the dealing with uncertainty or dealing with an uncertain personality sometimes sitting across from somebody and just mis completely misreading them or hitting the panic switch when your Zoom works and they don't. You're on a first call and there's there's uncertainty in so many things. That's where your people skills come out. That's where your own self-awareness comes out. So as I started to dive deep, it doesn't have to necessarily be complex for me either. But mm -hmm. I think that emotional intelligence, and I, and I think really at the end of the day, the um, it's how it's that conversation you have with yourself. You know, sometimes your um, your mind's like a bad neighborhood. It's not good to be alone <laughs> in it. Right? So that's what I, I recognize is something I struggle with. So yeah, well, and I think. Yeah, you quote Mike in the book, and I, for me, this has always been something almost from the beginning of my career. Is, is I'd heard a lecture about this. Is is he talked about? Uh, you've got the quote. You know, we've got to become masters in sailing through the tough times while maintaining a tolerance for ambiguity. And I remember hearing this lecture. I said very early in my career for this business school professor. I was at a sales kickoff meeting actually. Talked about. He thought the primary skill that sellers needed to master in order to have a successful career was developing a tolerance for ambiguity. It's, it, it's so true. It's, it's, I, I, I talk about this a lot and, and the ambiguity is you might need to be comfortable with 80% of the information and go. And, and that's, and you're going to have to, that ambiguity, like you just said to that tolerance for that, that also, means you're able to risk or have a tolerance to risk also because you may fail, you may succeed. And I, I really, I, I really see that a lot in sales and how well somebody does performance wise. Yeah. Well, I think it, it gets back to something we sort of touched on briefly before though, is, is this, this idea that, you know, it's being pushed more and more in sales these days is, you know, hey, here's the persona of who you're calling on. These are the websites that visit, the things they like to read, yada, 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 yada. And they want you to take this, you know, cookie cutter approach. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and you're going to get in front of that person and find out, no, oh, they're not really like that persona at all. Yes. And, sure. and if you think that everybody's going to be the same, yeah, you're going to be sorely disappointed because, you know, they're, how many billions of people in the world these days? Seven and a half billion or something, and each one of them are their own unique person. Yeah, and, and it's it's that macro to micro, right? It's it's um, we want to categorize people in certain buckets, and I'm going to walk a line here and be careful. Um, when we sell, though, put an ideal prospect profile is okay, but understanding that you're going to very much need to get to know that person and connect with them uniquely, human to human, yep. Yep. Is, is is at play. And it's not probably going to match up. It's going to be much different. It's going to be much different when you engage somebody. Yeah. And that sort of speaks to mindset then. I think, again, I yes. think tolerance for ambiguity is a mindset. But part of that, you know, may add on to that is, yeah, you just want to 
going as a seller, you're better off going in not assuming anything when you enter that that conversation, rather than assuming that things have to go a certain way or unfold a certain way. Otherwise, you're going to be disappointed. Agreed, and and that's and and that's a. You know, the only the only the thing the thing I talk to leaders and salespeople about, the thing you could probably assume one thing is you don't want to waste you, you want to you want to run the odds that you don't mm-hmm. want to waste people's time. And that's right. about it. That, that's probably the universal kicker right there. across every and, and, and other than that, everything else is game. And it's it's. I think the EQ concept allows for going to your concept of ambiguity is, is what if I had to pull one thing out of that, it's, it's the ability. It's not what you project on other people. It's how you deal with yourself and how agile you can be. Mm-hmm. Or do you, do you come in and realize that, you know, all right, I'm not going to get done what I think I'm going to get done here today. I'm not going to get it to a second meeting. I'm going to get to a meeting one a, or I'm not going to close this deal here. They're going to punt, but I'm going to have to be okay with it because if I act any other way, I'm going to come off aggressive. And this is my—I've never done business with these folks before, so there's not going to be. And it's that that ambiguity or that ability to be agile in the moment is is key. The other thing, though, I think you'll find this is interesting. Some of the research we're doing right now is we're seeing the. Sales processes, especially since the pandemic and anything complex, right, or semi-complex or this hybrid selling model. I was Mm -hmm. on the phone recently with this with one of my salespeople in this this presence manufacturing company. And he kind of was accusatory to me. He goes, you keep talking about this hybrid sales model and we need our people to be face to face. And I go, I said, it sounds like you're saying that I'm inferring you need some kind of hybrid sales model. I said, "Is, is that correct? He goes, that's what it feels like. I said, well, I didn't mean it that way, but I can certainly tell you, you're stating you need your people face-to-face with people. My only question is, what if your prospects don't want to be face-to-face? I think you have mm-hmm. a little bit of an issue. I said, your your ability to see it how it used to be as opposed to what it's going to be, even if that shifts 20 or 30% toward, toward opposite the way you want it, they're going to have to be agile, right? So I think inside of, inside of sales today, we have to adjust – and, and I, I agree with you. It always changes. And it's not going to back to what it was. It, it, today, it is what it's going to be until it adjusts again. Again, right. sales processes are fragmented. So you got this big fragmentation going on. So you have these little bursts of conversations. Yeah. You got Zoom fatigue. You got this. And, and that EQ, just on the sales side, to calm down, because I guess my, I, don't, I don't fish or hunt but I would assume it'd be pretty damn hard to fly fish. Never have done it. I'm an antsy person. I'm assuming if you move a lot in the water, you're going to scare stuff away, and you got to be patient enough to keep doing something like this. And and that's kind of how it is in sales right now. It's just fragmented. And yeah. and if you're not you're not in your head the right way, you're going to struggle. I think it's that way in business though too. I think good good salesperson, good business person today. Yeah. Well, I think I think part of it, the fragmentation is owed to the fact that, or down to the fact that, you know, sellers are sort of unclear in their mind what their job is. Yes. And so if they go out every morning and think their job is to <laughs> persuade someone to buy their product, uh, you know, you're starting from a bad position. 
Agreed. You know, the, um, um, the, this asymmetrical now goes to one time salespeople held the information right now. If you go back to what you said again, that ambiguity, Mm -hmm. chances are right, wrong, or indifferent. The buyer may have access to even more information than you do or more opinions because they can form opinions on everything. And your job right now is not to persuade them is to kind of figure out how much information they have and where you're going to move or mm-hmm. how you're going to move, right? It's the um, um, their Florida State did a study. Florida State Sales Institute did a study, kind of challenging the challenger model. It's done about right. five years ago. I don't, do you do you see that Florida State study? Do you ever see it? Uh, no, but I'm interested okay. in hearing about it. Yeah. So, so what they found, they tried to beat the challenger model and. So they looked at about 123 companies and their top performers. And as they 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 started to look at it, they realized that all the top performers that they studied typically had one to three or two to three strategies on any situation. So they were mm-hmm. agile, right? Yep. Um, they had multiple strategies. They were agile, right? Mm-hmm. So they were changelings. At some level, that's what the study came out as they tried to challenge the challenger model. I'll send it over to you. It's really interesting, but we've actually based a lot of what we do now. If it's semi semi complex or complex, what are your three moves every yeah. time? Because of the fragment fragmentation, it's so so bad. Like you might not get it from meeting one to meeting two. You might get to meeting one B, and that has to be okay. Um, you may not be able to negotiate here because. Um, they're going to cancel the meeting or not everybody's going to be there and it's going to be fragmented again. And not that that's so different, but I I think it's magnified a little bit today. Yeah, I think that's true. And it gets back again to ambiguity, right? Is, is how do we, you know, how do we prepare people? Yeah. Take a step back. And, you know, you talk about, you know, sales process being fragmented as, as I've always sort of really thought about as, as selling is it's, it's a collection of moments, Yes. yes. And it's what do you do in those moments? Because you have very few moments, right? <laughs> the moments meaning you're interacting with the buyer. It's what you do in those moments. And to your point is there's a lot of ambiguity about what could happen in any one of those moments. And so it's how do you prepare people with the instincts to do the right thing in these moments that matter? So, so. everybody's listening if you're hearing what Andy's saying is it's these collections of moments where you have to glue them together if you take that concept and you take it a step further it's also then taking the moments and recognizing where's the natural momentum Mm -hmm. of it and then where's and then what do you need to do to, to create artificial momentum to keep them glued together or advance it. Right. And I think a lot of salespeople don't realize that we were, we're doing some consulting with, um, so it's, we've looked at everything from leadership to their sales process with this company that kind of does what, um, like a Nielsen ratings does. I can't mm-hmm. name them because of confidentiality, but they, that's who they would compete against or inside that the genre. And, um, they're, we were told by their senior team that they're relationship sellers and we came back and assessed and looked at their deals and I go, yeah, they're relationship sellers, but you guys need to be consultative sellers. You're not, 
you're not even looking at this right. And, and mm-hmm. they said, okay, what's that look like? And we built out a model for them. And then we started to look at their deals, big deals, small deals. And every deal was six months. And if, with a few that were maybe a third shorter. And as we looked at all their deals, the and then we start to talk to the salespeople and how they're strategizing the sales leadership teaming is they didn't they weren't doing little things to keep those moments glued the right way. Right. Several of their it's interesting, Andy, several of their deals, you know, you behave differently in an unsolicited sale versus a solicited sale. You get a lead that comes in that already has natural momentum. There's reasons to move it very quickly and you mm-hmm. can get to a different spot. They weren't even recognizing little things like that. So then every deal was the same length when in turn the unsolicited deals should have been a third shorter, but it's not paying attention. And I think that comes down to a concept, right? Yep. A couple of concepts. One, you know, inside their sales process, they were looking, they were more worried about relationships. Well, relationships are outcomes. You might Mm -hmm. need to be a great agitator to sell certain things. Right. Right. Second thing is they didn't they didn't know what they were going for for meeting for meeting. Like you said, what's my purpose? What am I supposed to do in this moment? Right. And I I think the third thing, they weren't respecting something that was unsolicited versus solicited. So they didn't know they didn't recognize natural momentum. Right. Mm -hmm. So in a sale. So it's interesting. It's interesting how people look at things. What was the big problem? They treated everything the same. One right. size fits most. Right. Yeah. So, well, here's our here's our playbook. Yeah. I mean, you well, goes back to what we talked about earlier. Yeah. You know, cookie cutter. Right. Yeah. Back to the cookie cutter again. So. Yeah, and 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 again, you had another quote from Mike Andreco in the book is is uh, he says, but for all the right deals, when you're sitting in that room, there's a quote. You have to. You're going to have to make decisions that don't exist in any playbooks. And that goes back to your ambiguity, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, I think that one of the things that, you know, perhaps we do a disservice to sellers in general is, is this sort of, you know, this sort of tradition that's kind of passed on over the decades uh, since, you know, Patterson at, at NCR uh, was, was uh, you know, they feel like they need to go into meetings with the answers. And if you're going into a situation that's, that's a lot of ambiguity, you really need to be prepared with the questions. It's true. It's 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 so it's so true and interesting. Um, you brought uh, Patterson up at NCR a couple of weeks ago. My son visited University of Dayton mm-hmm. and the Patterson Museum that's right there. I brought right, him by. Right. Told him the whole story. I taught him. I also said, "Do you know what he did one time? He actually burnt. He he burnt down. He he, he deconstructed the whole. All the salespeople kept coming to the office, and he wanted them out of the office. And he literally." Um, Demolished the sales office when they came back. It was just grazed over. They get out of the office. So there's all kinds of interesting stories about Patterson. But but you're yeah. but you're right. Um, you know, it, and I think that goes back to salespeople. Think about this concept for a second, because usually this catches people's eyes. Like I, I'm big on nomenclature. Probably when I was younger, it didn't didn't matter much. But when we go mm-hmm. into organizations, like we're just working with an ad firm, and they go, we go in and do a needs assessment. I go, okay, why do you call it a needs assessment? And they go, why wouldn't we? I go, because you don't actually sell anything anybody needs. So why would it be a needs assessment? Why wouldn't it be like an opportunity analysis? 
And then I had a smart ass salesperson there, and that was probably <laughs> me when I was younger. And I go, and he goes, why does that matter? I said, well, it matters because it's the kind of question you'll ask. If it's a needs assessment, you're problem solving, not problem finding. Right. And, and you got to find problems and find opportunities, which is different. And he goes, I don't see a difference. I said, well, why don't you do this? Why don't you go back and look at the, think about what I said and then look up the definitions of what I'm saying. He came back and he goes, he said, yeah, that makes sense, man. He goes, that makes sense. I said, yeah, you're probably acting like a bad episode of NCIS as opposed to talking about what's possible. Because, like, look, what you sell is important but not urgent. Yeah. So don't try and sell it that way. So, Yeah, I, I try to simplify it, simplify it for people. Just, you know, think about, to your point precisely about problem finders versus problem solvers, is think about the buying journey in sort of three phases. You know, the, the what phase, the how phase, and the who phase. And the what phase is, what's the problem? Yep. Right? And what's the nature of the outcomes you want to achieve? And only then, once you've identified that, can you then go to, well, let's examine the trade-offs and the options we have for how to solve it. No doubt. No doubt. And the third order consideration, which sellers have a hard time coming to terms with, is who am I going to buy it from? That's exactly And if you come in as a seller and you try to sell who during the what phase, you're going to have a real hard time. Absolutely. Well said. Very well said. All right. Well, seems like you've been doing this for a little bit, buddy. I said we exchanged ages before we got on the air. So you can't you can't reveal mine. I won't reveal. I'm, yours. I'm not. Don't reveal mine. So please. So <laughs> I, I love these conversations. It's, it's so, so fun to talk to somebody who can see in the distance with sales. So many people see it and, and it's inch inch in front of them, not it's so many variables yeah. and it's, there's not a, you got to take all the variables in the context to get it done. And it's, it's not, it's not the one thing. It's right. not one thing. So likewise, Lance, always enjoy it. Um, so tell people about your book. Yeah. If you had, didn't listen to our last episode with Lance, uh, enjoyed his previous book, sales is an away game, right? Uh, which I think is a great mental image that I always think about. Um, and you refer to it in this, this book as well. So tell people about this book. So, so Igniting Sales EQ is, is really a roadmap to check off for yourself about how to, how to keep that somewhat calmness in, I'm going to go back to what Andy said, in these ambiguous times um, or ambiguous situations you're in. Um, where sometimes, um, if you think about a deal, for instance, sometimes you work in the deal instead of on the deal. Mm-hmm. If you think about igniting sales EQ, it's not working through the moment. It's working on the whole roadmap of how you have to deal with things. So it's more of a thinking process than anything else. I, I take a swat at it from a sales perspective. Um, it's a very short book. It's it's on Amazon and, and uh, pretty easy to read. It's quick. Yep. It's a quick read. Um, get it done in a in a setting so. easily. Yeah. No. I. I. Yeah. Uh, so as I prepare for the show, I always read my guest's book, and it's always nice to have one that length. <laughs> so, but as to your point, is is yeah, it's going to force you to think, and yeah, just reminder people: sales is a thinking person's game. <laughs> it is a thinking person. It's business, so, business, right? Yes, yeah. Very much. So, all right. I appreciate you having me on. Hey, a pleasure as always, and I look forward to doing it again.
Absolutely. Thanks, Andy. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. I'm so grateful for your support of this show. And I want to thank my guest, Lance Tyson, for sharing his insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for your help with that. And thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.